Welcome to this podcast presented by LexisNexis. Because the law is everywhere, at the heart of our lives and our discussions, this series brought to you by LexisNexis and guests will cover current issues that impact us daily. I am joined today by Sean Finn and Danielle Miller Olafson, authors of LexisNexis Canada's In the Public Eye Privacy, Personal Information, and High Stakes Litigation in the Canadian Public Sector. Sean Finn is a partner in the Montreal-based litigation department of BCF LLP and co-leader of the firm's class action defense group. His practice focuses on complex commercial litigation and class actions. His class action work involves the representation of corporate and institutional defendants in the areas of product liability, mass torts, consumer protection, privacy, and securities. Danielle Miller Olafson is a senior associate in the corporate group in the Montreal office of Steichman Elliott LLP. Her practice focuses on all matters relating to privacy and data protection, including issues related to new technologies such as artificial intelligence and blockchain. Welcome, Danielle and Sean. Thank you. Hello, thank you very much. I'd like to start off by asking both of you why you decided to write a book on the topic of privacy and personal information in the public sector. What motivated me, at least, and I think Sean as well, is just that this is really an area where a lot of the issues are being played out on on two levels. The first is just the quantity and quality of information, personal information that's being collected by public entities And the second level is because of that, it makes these public entities a tremendous target, especially in the sort of shifting landscape that we're seeing with respect to cyber attacks and um, ransomware, actually. Uh, And so what I mean by this is that when you consider, for example, there is just one Revenue Canada and that amount of information that that one agency has on each and every Canadian is phenomenal. So a malevolent actor that really wants to get their hands on personal information so as to injure perhaps a state entity or demand phenomenal amounts of ransom would obviously target one of these entities. And that puts a lot of pressure on these entities to make sure that their information is protected and properly protected. It also uh, means that if there is a breach or if there is an incident, these entities are on the hook for a tremendous amount of money or tremendous amount of damage. And um, this, and I'm wading into Sean's area, and this is an area that, that, that fascinates me, is that it's really throwing into question the whole, I guess, function and purpose of class action within the public sector. And what I mean by that is um, while class action is a very effective means of including and enabling each and every person to seek and require justice, there's the other point that is in the public sector, what are, what are we actually doing with class action? Yes, an individual may be compensated for damages, but What does that do in the end? In the end, it either increases the rates of the public utility or whatever, or increases tax 
that we have to pay. So what are we actually doing here with class action in the public sector? Are we not taking from Peter to pay Paul or taking from Paul to pay Peter? So those are kind of the issues that that were really interesting me and um, motivated uh, motivated my uh, writing of this book. Yeah, I would say that my main motivation was Danielle herself. Uh, that's a joke. <laughs> that's a great answer. That's a very, very complete answer. Um I, I'll just add a, a couple a couple points. Uh, one is that I think that historically in this country and probably elsewhere in the world, we've tended to think both of privacy and and of class actions as primarily concern of the of the private sector. In other words, something that big businesses especially should be worried about. Uh, and I think that now we, we're coming to the realization very quickly that, in fact, it isn't simply um, a matter of concern for private entities, but also for, for public entities or what we call public bodies, uh, because there are institutions out there, state institutions, uh, hospitals, schools, and other bodies that obviously are collecting a lot of personal information that are storing that information, that are using that information, and that are sometimes disseminating that information. So it's not just about it's not just about private actors. And what we've also seen is that in terms of class actions, uh, these class actions are no longer only being directed against uh, private businesses. They're also being directed against the crown, the state, whether that is the, the federal crown or the provincial crown or municipal uh, municipalities or hospitals or schools. So I think that that means that the whole question of pub potential public sector liability is a very live question, a very important question. And to my knowledge, at least, and uh, Danielle will correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that there is not currently, aside from this book, I don't think that there is a book out there in Canada that attempts to address this very complex, multifarious issue on a pan-Canadian basis. And so we saw that there was a gap there and that there was a need on the part of public sector entities to know more about, well, what's the law that affects me? And also, you know, like, what is my, what is my potential risk? What are my liabilities? And I think that our philosophy is primarily focused on being Proactive. In other words, yes, of course, we want to, we would like to help public bodies to better understand how to deal with a class action if they're faced with one that involves issues of privacy and, and or personal information. But ideally, what we'd like to do is to provide them with tools and information um, in order to proactively prevent or avoid such a class action, or at the very least to mitigate the consequences of such a, a class action and to mitigate the harm not only to themselves, but primarily to those people uh, who have entrusted them with their with their personal information. So what would you say are some of the greatest challenges with personal information protection legislation? So maybe I can, uh, <laughs> since I'm already chatting away, I'll, I'll, I'll take a stab at that one very quickly and then uh, hand it off to, uh, to Danielle. I, I think that there are, <clears throat> I mean, the, one of the big challenges is that Canada, uh, for all kinds of fascinating constitutional reasons, is a, is a patchwork of legislation, and I'd say it, it's a it's a double patchwork in a sense because 
You have a patchwork of privacy legislation. In other words, there is a privacy legislation that exists at the federal level, but also at the provincial level, also at the territorial level, that are sometimes harmonized to a certain extent and at other times not harmonized. And that patchwork of legislation has also given rise to you know, jurisprudence or case law in all of these various jurisdictions from a privacy standpoint. And that's complicated because if you are a public body that is providing services on a national basis, that means that you're not contending really with one single jurisdiction or one single statute. You're potentially dealing with several different and in some cases competing statutes. So that's one level of complexity. A further level of complexity is the fact for the very same constitutional reasons there is not one class actions regime in Canada. There are many class action regimes in Canada, again, at the federal level, but most importantly, at the provincial level. And those regimes, although they're not radically different one from another, are nevertheless not identical. And they also have given, and that's particularly true of Quebec, I would say, and they have, they have given rise also to their own case law in all of these various jurisdictions. So if you, again, if you are a, a public body that is providing services on a national or multi-jurisdictional basis, well, then you could find yourself potentially being sued in various jurisdictions at once and having to contend with uh, different uh, privacy and personal information rules and different procedural rules when it comes to class actions. So that makes uh, the prospect of litigation especially complex, and it also makes it especially uh, especially costly if you have to defend yourself in various jurisdictions at once. And so I, I think that if you want to think about uh, privacy, personal information, and even class actions, one it's similar in that respect to securities litigation. You know, again, there's not just one statute for all of Canada. There, there's a patchwork of uh, of statutes, and I think that this this places uh, public bodies at considerable risk. So it it makes it more complicated in terms of handling litigation, uh, but also it it might make it a little bit more difficult also when you're thinking in terms of what should I do proactively to avoid or to minimize the risk of, of, of litigation or the risk of a, of a hack or whatever it might be, that also might be a little bit different because what you have to bear in mind are not necessarily always precisely the same uh, legal obligations and standards. Yeah, I, I completely agree with with what Sean is saying. There is this this tremendous difficulty around harmonization. The other thing I would add, well, the other two things I would add is first, technology. I think technology is above, and this is around the world, really challenging the way that we characterize, um, manage, protect personal information. Uh, things like. Um, Big data, artificial intelligence, deep fakes, uh, blockchain, these were not around when 
many of the principles upon which privacy legislation, no matter where you are in the world, was being developed. So this is really challenging how we even go about thinking about personal information and how we think about protecting it. The other issue that I would point to is the shifting landscape, and I I sort of alluded to this before, in the uh, malevolent actors. I think I think we've gone from sort of irritants and people in their basement trying to sort of tick off a, a company to state-protected malevolent actors who are there to destabilize uh, nations. We've seen this with interference in elections. We've also seen it with some pretty unpleasant attacks, ransomware attacks on hospitals where people's lives have been lost because a system has been frozen. Uh, So I think there's that also, and and the the ability to address the geopolitical threat that is sort of ransomware, ransomware attacks. Um, So so I guess technology and geopolitics are are the two um, factors I see as uh, really challenging existing privacy and legislation. Why do you think there is a reluctance to attaching a price tag to personal information or as treating it as a form of property? That I would I would I just look back at its history. I think a lot of this, well, I know that a lot of the privacy legislation initially grew out of human rights legislation and a reaction to um, human rights violations. And so we've really conceptualized uh, privacy protection and privacy legislation with with that in mind. So it's difficult conceptually sometimes for people to disassociate um, privacy, personal information, um, and 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 human human rights. And I think that this is one area um, where we have to be a little more vigilant with our vocabulary, uh, data. Privacy, personal information are three different things, although we very frequently mix them up and use these terms interchangeably. Um, and I think that there is, if one views this as Venn diagrams, a circle that is personal information. There's also a circle that is private information. And these are not two circles. These circles perhaps um, are joined and there's a common area where one should be protecting information. But I don't think that one should be protecting necessarily personal information willy-nilly, regardless of its sensitivity. Yet that seems to have been the approach, not that's adopted, but that's evolved because of, again, big data technology, our desire to to protect as much as we can, to protect the individual without really taking into consideration the value of what we're protecting. And I think that we need to be able to start uh, thinking a little more and and allowing data uh, to be a form of, um, to be recognized rather as a form of currency, because let's not, uh, you know, let's not mistake ourselves. Data very much is a form of currency. If, if you look at, at many models, very successful businesses, what's being exchanged is in fact personal information. Facebook's a great example, but there are many other examples out there. Um, so I, that's the, the long answer in my soapbox about this. That's a great answer. And, um, Danielle no, will, will, has forgotten a lot more about privacy than I'll ever know. So I'll take a, I'll, again, I'll take a stab at it. I don't know how, uh, how sophisticated of an answer this will be, but I do think that it's worthwhile, as, as Danielle has done there, to make a distinction between privacy and personal information. And sometimes 
speaking only for myself, sometimes I struggle a little bit with the like, do I do I talk about privacy class actions? Do I talk about personal information class actions? Uh, and do you know what is the nature of the distinction between the two? And the way that uh, that I look at it, and this may be a primitive way of looking at it, is that pri- when we talk about privacy, it's a very you know, talking about it's a large circle, if I can put it that way. It's a large, somewhat amorphous concept that contains within it different components or different elements. There's a territorial component to it. Uh, when, you know, my house is my castle. A man's house is his castle. So that's sort of the territorial component. There's, of course, the physical aspect of privacy. Um, and, and there's also the informational aspect of privacy. And I think that, you know, uh, Danielle was talking before about human rights. And I think that when we're dealing with the territorial and physical components of privacy, those have traditionally been viewed, I would say, as, as natural rights. Uh, and, that, and that's part of the reason why in Canada, uh, privacy has been viewed as, as, a, as quasi-constitutional. Uh, and so, and so, because there is this uh, this 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 natural rights dimension to uh, territorial privacy and physical privacy, well, that same that same sanctity, if I can put it that way, has come to imbue the third component, which is the informational component. So that you know, so that our personal information, in some sense, is seen as also being a kind of, by some people at least as being a kind of a natural right or a fundamental right that is, um, that is above commodification. But as, uh, as Danielle was pointing out, in, in our world, in the modern world, and even in the not-so-modern world, uh, we trade uh, per our personal information all the time. And we trade our personal information in order to obtain services, including governmental services, services from public bodies, uh, in order to uh, participate in, um, in in certain platforms, social media platforms in particular, you can't have a Facebook uh, account without providing some personal information, without divulging some personal information. And in order to access certain forms of technology, and we want, and we're prepared to do that, and we're happy to do that. For example, if I'm uh, in the lovely city of Toronto, and I want to find out how to get to the Royal York Hotel or wherever it might be, and I'm a little bit lost and I don't know how to get there, well, then I will gladly, I will gladly provide some personal information in order to find out how to get from where I am to the Royal York Hotel. So I'm prepared to provide that personal information in exchange for a, a service that I receive. Um, and so, and so clearly there are aspects of privacy, particularly aspects of personal information, that are, are, that are part of the, the world of commodification and exchange and trade. And I wonder, and, and again, I'm, I'm not uh, putting forward any, any grand theories here, but I, I wonder if, just as it is possible in, in the civilian context to dismember Property, you know, when you take a, a right of property, it can be dismembered into individual components. Uh, what we call here, use of, you know, the right to use, the right to profit from the fruits of property, the right to dispose of property. I wonder if, conceptually speaking, it, it is not also possible to disaggregate or dismember 
the right to privacy in such a way that, and, and more specifically, that component that deals with personal information so that certain parts of it can be treated, arguably, as a, as a commodity or as something that is a good with a value. And what's interesting is that there's a recent decision that was rendered in 2022 in Quebec called Option Consommateur v. Google. And in that case, uh, Justice Bisson of the Superior Court of Quebec basically says that, suggests at least, that it is possible to put a price tag on personal or certain aspects of personal information. And that just as a person has a right to be compensated, in Quebec at least, when their image is used uh, without, without their consent, so likewise, um, a person has the right to be compensated when their personal information is being used without their consent. And I think that parallel is a very interesting one, and we'll see whether or not it has legs. And I think I've already spoken too much about this, but I think it's important to keep this distinction in mind, like privacy and personal information are obviously connected, but they're not synonymous. So let's speak a bit more about class actions. What makes personal information-based class actions particularly significant in the public sector? So I, I say that they are they are significant for uh, various reasons. Number one, and I've already alluded to this, is the uh, is the is the enormous cost that they that they can that they represent. Um, and, and this this is true, and this is this is important because the, the public body in question could be a very well funded national entity. Or it could be a local entity that is very poorly funded. And so, and so class action is expensive no matter what, but I would say it's particularly burdensome for, you know, a smaller public body. And this is true even if the class action is not certified or authorized. In other words, even if the court says this procedure is not sufficiently serious to warrant the court allowing it to go further. The mere fact that it that a, that a class action is brought and has to be debated to some extent, even if it's at a preliminary level, is still a very a very significant cost, a very significant burden. And I think that this is particularly true, as we mentioned before, where the public body is basically defending against exactly the same class action but in more than one jurisdiction. So there will be a duplication of costs and a duplication of efforts. So that's that's the first reason why a personal information class action or a privacy class action, however you want to frame it, is, uh, is significant. One thing that's really um, sort of eaten away at me is, is who, who actually benefits from a class action uh, against a public body? Because as I said before, uh, you know, the, the cost is, is, is passed on. Ultimately, it's passed on to the same group of people who are pursuing uh, the public body in the form of taxes because it's cost the entity money to defend this class action. So how do we pay for that? Well, the, <laughs> the taxpayer pays for that. Or if um, it's a utility or an entity like that, then our 
our our bills go up. So what are we doing here? And this is this is what I think is super interesting about class actions um, against public bodies. Is is this really the appropriate form of action to to to, to compensate individuals who have been damaged because of negligence on the part of a public body? I, I agree with you 100 percent. And passing on, because the reality is, as you just said, that, you know, ultimately that price, whatever it ends up being, whether it's just for the authorization debate or whether it's for the class action on the merits or the damages award or whatever it may be, ultimately, if that institution or that public body survives, which it, which it probably will if it's providing an essential service, well, that, that cost is going to be passed on to the patient's uh, the taxpayers, the students, whoever it might be. So there's the problem of passing on. And yes, exactly, like you're taking money out of your right pocket to put it into your left pocket. It doesn't really make, make much sense in that sense. The third issue is that I think it creates the, these types of uh, personal information class actions have can create some bad incentives because one bad incentive is that it discourages, I would say, innovation. And I think that Danielle maybe could speak more to that point that, that certainly than I'm able to, but technology is constantly evolving and there are newer and better ways of protecting personal information. But public bodies may be reluctant to uh, adopt new technology or new approaches uh, because they are perhaps not as well tested as older technologies. And therefore, there's a reluctance to innovate. And that's unfortunate, I think. And it also uh, discourages honesty, in a sense, because if uh, a public body, or rather, if it's, it's, uh, its personnel, its employees, know that a, an incident can result in costly litigation, and that they might find themselves wrapped up in that litigation, well, then there is an incentive to perhaps not be as forthcoming as they should be when an incident occurs. Like, for example, let's say that a USB key that contains uh, the personal information of thousands of patients goes missing. Well, that person, rather than reporting the incident immediately and taking uh, and making sure that measures are taken to deal with the incident, might say, well, I'm just going to keep quiet for now, and hopefully that USB key will eventually show up. It's probably just been mislaid. And even if I'm not able to find it, well, hopefully it hasn't fallen into the wrong hands. And hopefully, even if it has, that information is somehow protected and it's not going to be used in some uh, malevolent way. So, so I think that, that class actions... And again, I'm not, the idea is not to to attack class actions and to say that they are that they are um, that they are purely negative procedures that they have no benefits. They do. There are good personal information class actions. There are good privacy class actions, but there are less good ones as well. And I think that one of the downsides is that it may have, unfortunately, the effect of discouraging people from coming forward and being transparent and being proactive in that sense. And finally, I think that uh, another reason they are significant is that they can have the effect of eroding uh, confidence, public confidence in, in, in public bodies and institutions, especially where uh, personal information class actions are being brought, even when the 
public body is itself a victim of uh, of a uh, of a malevolent hack, or even when uh, the 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 public body has um, has has made a, an honest mistake and taken uh, effective remedial measures to deal with that mistake. And so I think that for all of these reasons, uh, personal information class actions taken against public bodies are significant and uh, have uh, important consequences that we need, need to take into account. I'd also like to add, Sean, I mean, the inability frequently of a public body to declare bankruptcy. I mean, this is sort of perhaps a less attractive side of the way that some defendants handle class actions to just say, OK, look, we're bankrupt. There's no more money. We can't do that in the public sector. Uh, and so then that drives the the price of of, of rewards up uh, in the same way that, you know, if you if you decide to pay ransom, does that not encourage ransom demand to increase? So speaking of hackers, in your opinion, should public entities pay ransom? Um, I, I would love to be able to say no, but it's not that easy. Uh, you know, if, if somebody's life is 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 at stake or, or patients' lives are at stake, or if it's minus 30 and your your power grid has been hacked, you know, ransom is probably not on the top of your list of priorities. You're going to pay it because you need to get you need to get things moving again. But I think it is part of a larger debate that we need to have around the sort of parallel industry that is growing up around this, because you have now ransom negotiators. You've also got private bounty bug hunters. Or and This is just, <laughs> it's almost science fictional uh, in, 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 in the proportions uh, that, that it's a that 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 is that's obtained. So so um, I think I think we do as a society, and I don't know if this will happen, but we certainly do need to start thinking about the long term effects of of what we are doing. Now, if you don't pay ransom, what is what is the option? I mean, some of these attacks cannot be avoided, no matter what kind of security you have. What do you do to get that information back? Obviously, the best um, the best. Uh, fallback position is to have very good backup records, very good systems that'll kick in quickly so that you can retrieve all the information that was lost and keep, you know, keep keep moving. Now, that doesn't prevent your information from finding its way onto the dark web and from institutions from being embarrassed, but it does enable you to keep going. Uh, and, and the other thing with ransom is that it's you know, yes, it's great to, to to think that just because you pay an amount, you're going to get your data restored 100%. That is sometimes not the case. Uh, you know, information is restored partially. There are examples and there are cases where institutions have actually been able to restore their data faster than if um, a ransom actor had been uh, had been had been compensated and, and were able to give people the key so there there are a lot of questions around this it's not as it's not to me as simple as a uh, ransom request and here we'll you know send you the bitcoin that that doesn't i think it's a little more complicated than that sean yeah no exactly and uh, i i agree with you because there is a obviously it's loathsome the, the notion of paying ransom whether it's in this context or any context, is a loathsome notion. And, we, you know, like we have all of these expressions that come to mind, like crime doesn't pay and we don't negotiate with terrorists. 
And uh, unfortunately, the world is a, is a complicated place with some bad actors in it. And sometimes we sometimes crime does pay, at least in the short term, and sometimes over the longer term. And sometimes we do have to negotiate with people that we would much rather not have to deal with. And so I agree that there isn't a, a single answer to that question. Um, and there are it's always going to be, I think, a cost benefit analysis that is being conducted. And I'm not saying that policy isn't a part of it or that principles aren't a part of it. Of course, they will be. But ultimately, it's a cost benefit analysis. And the, the, the problem with paying the ransom is twofold, because number one, you're already dealing with a dishonest person. There's no guarantee that even if you that if you pay the ransom, they're going to actually release the information and will not use it in some way. The second problem is that it will, by paying the ransom, you're you're encouraging more bad behavior. You're encouraging more privacy. On the other hand, if you don't pay the ransom, that could have the effect of harming the persons who's uh, the, the people whose per personal information has already been hijacked. Uh, to an even greater extent. And in both of those scenarios, you know, you could, it could become the basis of a class action, you know, whether, you know, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't, in a sense. And, um, and, and like Danielle was saying, I mean, th there, you can imagine situations in which, um, for example, I mean, not to give anybody any ideas, obviously, but if a malevolent state actor were to hack into a, an electrical grid, for example, and could potentially shut that off or compromise it in some way for an extended period of time in a, in a country like Canada, for example, that, that could be as bad, if not worse, than, a, than an actual uh, physical attack on that jurisdiction. Other considerations are, go are going to come into play as well that may have to do with foreign policy and various other things. So it can be extraordinarily complicated. And I think what all of this points to is the importance, again, of being, and I think we've said it more than once, proactive. In other words, the idea is not to wait for something terrible to happen and then to hope that you have a contingency plan in place. It's obviously very good to have a contingency plan. But you also have to take steps, I think, to avoid, again, or mitigate that risk. And Danielle talked about different strategies that can be used. I mean, obviously, at some point, something not necessarily foreseeable will happen. But you have to at least game out different possibilities and take measures to ensure that you're in a position to uh, at the very least, mitigate the consequences when those when those possibilities materialize, but hopefully avoid them altogether. I just, uh, again, picking up on something Sean was saying, um, you know, when this is another example of where I think technology is really pushing, as it does in many areas, the boundaries of the way we approach data protection. An example uh, is, a, you know, a smart smart hospitals, smart grid, smart anything, where you have all sorts of entities and things that are interconnected and where poisoning, you know, one entry point can really have a broad, broad, broad uh, ramification. And this is where we frequently don't analyze to its fullest extent what the effects of a new smart technology are going to be, because, you know, uh, 
a great, there's a great book called Blackout by Mark Ellsberg that actually talks about an integrated power grid in Europe that gets pirated by this is a it's an eco terrorist organization and how they're able to to bring a continent well continent yes uh, a continent to its knees. Uh, by just penetrating one smart grid because everything is so interconnected. And this is something that I think we need to think about a little better. I think this is where different data governance models are extremely important, especially when we're thinking about cooperation between public and private sectors where we're trying to, you know, look for different ways of solving problems that are common to everybody. We really we have to do our, our, our privacy impact analysis uh, in, with a much broader spectrum, much broader scope in, in mind. Yeah, and I think it also points to the need for different stakeholders to come together because lawyers in their offices to becoming devising policies, as important as that is. Uh, but you also need people with the technological knowledge there. You also need exactly. the people who have practical experience in terms of running or working within that organization who understand the culture of the organization and how it functions internally. And so all of these people have to be working together to develop a plan that that is comprehensive and adapted, tailor, tailored to that particular uh, public body. So do you think new governance models would help us better protect personal information? I think depending on your project, uh, it would. I, you know, there there are many projects for sustainable cities, smart uh, smart highways, um, smart hospitals. All of these these things uh, definitely require a different governance model. And Sean was talking earlier about dismembering the the, the notion of, I guess, privacy as either a right or a property right human right. I think this is where it becomes interesting. There's a lot of talk about data trusts. One of the problems with data trusts is actually a conceptual one. We're, we're not able to figure out how data and the trust structure are able to be married in a way that, that, that provides any integrity to either concept. But there's also, in Europe recently, uh, they, they've begun to think about this. And there's the Data Governance Act, which is either passed or on the verge of being passed by the European Union, which is quite interesting because it deals not only with personal information, but it deals with other data and how we can use data um, and at the same time protect it. There, there are questions, and I think these are legitimate questions. For example, healthcare. Healthcare is increasingly costly. There's an increasingly aging population. We've got diseases we didn't think we'd have. Uh, and so how do you deal with this? It's a public, it's a, it's a, it's a public uh, service. It's also a public uh, expense. Now we're protecting patients' information in a you know in a way that's absolutely ironclad. We're not allowing researchers necessarily the access that or the ease of access. Let me say that they need in order to study all of this data. Yet it's it's a public system. So and here again, and I, if if information were perceived more as uh, a commodity or more as a form of property, I could maybe be able to exchange my personal health information for personal health services. And there, there's a trade-off there that I think one needs to one needs to explore. 
because, you know, the government is paying for my health. So why is it that a public sector entity or the government cannot use uh, my personal information? Now, that does not mean that it needs to send it off to X number of, of, of companies that want to sell me products, but certainly it should be used um, to be able to conduct research and, um, and, and, you know, find answers that could benefit everyone. Very good. And, and I would maybe just end, uh, you know, we're talking about governance, governance models. And I think that when, when, whenever we deal with governance, one of, the, one of the terms that we have to keep in mind is also culture. You know, and uh, I know that sounds very esoteric and, and airy-fairy at times, but every institution and every public body has a culture. Yeah. Whether that's stated explicitly or not. And I think that one of the one of the realities is that up until now, quite often, whenever we're talking about privacy or personal information, we tend to see these things as, and perhaps I'm guilty of that as well, as being cost centers. In other words, these are problems that we have to address in various ways in order to avoid being sued. And that, and there's truth to that. I mean, that, that's a, I think that's perfectly legitimate. But I think that the culture has to change such that privacy and personal information are no longer simply perceived as cost centers, but rather as a cornerstone of a, of a new kind of culture that values those things. Because I think that that's, a, that's true in any context. I think it's especially true when it comes to a public body because you have people who almost without choice in some instances are, 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 are providing that public body uh, or conferring to that public body information, in some cases, very sensitive personal information. Uh, and so there's a relationship, you know, you're talking about trusts. There's a relationship of trust between these people and, and, the, and the public bodies that serve them. And, and so I think that that trust has to be honored by the, by the public body. And so, yes, absolutely, uh, there are definitely technological innovations and technological tools that can be used in various ways to, to protect personal information and to, to better protect public bodies. But I think it's also very important for those public bodies to encourage a culture that values that values privacy, that values uh, personal information, and that that encourages people, those people who are working at those public bodies, to take that personal information seriously, uh, and not simply to adopt policies, but to really implement those policies to make sure that they become concrete practices. And and that to ensure that people are are also encouraged when an incident occurs, because incidents will occur, to be forthcoming and to let people know. And so I think that there has to be not just a, a shift in terms of the technology, which there does, and perhaps a shift in terms of our way of conceptualizing privacy and personal information but also a culture shift that values that and doesn't simply see it as a problem, but rather as a, as a, or a responsibility, but actually as a value that we have to, that we have to be uh, cognizant of and that we have to 
cherished to a certain extent. As we come to the end of this podcast, I'd like to talk a bit a bit more about the future of privacy. So where do you see the future of privacy and personal information reform in Canada? I mean, I think privacy will always be with us in one form or another. Uh, I don't think it's uh, accurate to say that, you know, things you hear sometimes that, that, that younger generations or generations with different kinds of technologies don't value privacy. I think that's wrong. I think it's something that one needs just as an individual to be able to, to develop um, personal information. I don't know where it's going to go. We are seeing, we have reforms in Quebec that are very similar to uh, what, what's happened in Europe and clearly also what's happening in the United States. Uh, there's a bill before uh, Parliament right now, federal Parliament, uh, second reading. We're seeing if that will um, that will get passed to reform Canada's federal uh, personal information protection electronic document act. I'd, but above and beyond that, I'd like to see greater uh, thought put into uh, some of the things we discussed. For instance, the the monetization of uh, personal information, um, and I'd also like to to see um, a, a greater attempt to to think. Uh, or rethink some hybrid structures like a data trust or, uh, you know, a data governance bill or something like this that would enable us to be much more flexible with the way that we uh, that we handle and that we that we process data. Especially going forward, we've got so many challenges, uh, be it healthcare, uh, be it climate change. There's so many things where different public entities have to work together along with uh, private entities to try and come up with solutions. But it won't change, I think, as, as Sean very, very accurately pointed out, until there's um, you know, a cultural shift and the realization within organizations uh, that we have, to, we have to behave differently, especially with respect to personal information. I know that the time is fleeting, so I'll keep it very, very simple. Just three points. Number one, I think that privacy is going to continue in Canada, at least, and I would say internationally, to remain a very, a very complex issue. So it, 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 we're, we're, it's, it's complex now. It's going to continue to be complex going forward. There are, uh, as Danielle mentioned, reforms, uh, legislative reforms that are taking place, but there, the, the, the prospect of some kind of national multi-jurisdictional or even international harmonization, maybe eventually, but we're not there yet. So it's going to stay complicated for a long time, I think. Number two, there are going to be an increasing number of privacy and personal information class actions. Uh, this is a phenomenon that's growing, and I would say that privacy and personal information is one of the great frontiers of uh, the new frontiers of class action litigation. Class action is the ultimate chameleon. It has adapted itself to everything. It's gone from being a procedure that was initially intended to deal almost primarily with uh, consumer products to becoming something that is applied to pretty much every sector of social and economic activity. And not surprisingly, privacy is one of those sectors. The case law remains mixed uh, but there's going. I think that there will be more. There will be more class actions to come, and various doctrines are being tested: intrusion upon seclusion, for example, 
uh, and others that are being tested in the courts, and we'll see where that goes. Uh, and number three, I think that privacy is one of those topics that is that has grown in importance for the ordinary person. Uh, and almost everybody uh, who has a, a, a smartphone, and that's pretty much, that's a significant, my mother doesn't, but it's a significant portion of the population, um, is, is, is alive to the issue. Uh, and concerned, I would say, by the issue. And, and in some cases, and especially for younger people, surprisingly sophisticated about, about, about that issue. And I think that whenever you have a large segment of the population that is aware of and engaged in a particular issue, and I think privacy is obviously more than a legal issue, it's, an, it's, it's, a, it's a social issue, it's an economic issue, uh, it's intent, by, by its very nature, it's intensely personal. And so I think whenever you have that, well, necessarily you're going to you're going that that's going to translate into legislative activity, and that's going to translate also into lawsuits. So I, I think that uh, privacy and personal information are not are not going to disappear. They're going to become increasingly um, uh, they're, they're going to occupy an increasingly central role in, in the public discourse which is probably a good thing, but it, it's going to make life for public bodies also a little bit more, more complicated for that very reason, and really for all of us. And that's just in the nature of things. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you both Sean and Danielle for joining me, and I'd like to thank the listeners for tuning in.